Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 101 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, will bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. I am jazzed up and, and ready for this episode. Yeah, we're taking episode number 101 to heart today and spending time explaining what various financial terms actually mean in plain English. So getting back to the roots of, of why we started the podcast in the first place. Back to the basics, baby. So before we begin, as always, take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 9th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 0.42% for the month and up 12.35% for the year. The Dow down three, excuse me, 0.37% for the month and up 12.55% for the year. The NASDAQ up 1.37% for the month and up 8.05% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 2.12% for the month and up 18.8% for the year. And I will just make a note that um, the Russell 2000 index ETF IWM hit an all-time high just two days ago on June 8th. That's not bearish. Yes. Uh, the Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 0.35% for the month and up 11.8% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.03%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.5%. That's come down. It has. It has. It was up close to 1.65%, right? Or one, even, even before 1. that, 1.7%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Headlines and current events from the past week, the May jobs report came out, Matt, and it was not as good as expected in terms of payroll growth, but it was better than what was seen in April. So the estimate was adding 650,000 jobs, but the actual number came in at about 560,000. Yep. Uh, unemployment rate did drop to 5.8%. Um, for listeners, Mark, I want to throw out there, it wouldn't surprise me as... Uh, some of these extended unemployment benefits um, expire to see some of these job numbers be outsized high for a couple of months. Surprising to the upside? It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. We can expect that the past, or excuse me, the next couple of months. Um, U.S. airline travel continues to increase. Uh, it hit the highest uh, it's been since March of 2020, and it's down 26% versus 2019 levels, and that came from Compound Advisors on May 30th. Uh, the home prices uh, update via the popular S&P Case-Shiller National Home Price Index have reached the previous 2007 highs adjusted for inflation. So um, we're seeing housing prices getting near that 07 level. Um, again, not necessarily anything I think homeowners or investors should be concerned about because in my opinion we're in a completely different environment 
I'm not one to say it's different this time, but it is a completely different environment today than what we saw back in 07. Especially with the underlying credit ratings of these recent mortgage originations we talked about in previous podcasts, I would agree. Right, right. And finally, the uh, the so-called meme stocks or popular social media stocks were the talk of the market last week with names like AMC Entertainment and GameStop coming back into the limelight similar to several months ago. So we'll see how long that'll last this time around. Yeah, my 10 seconds is tread lightly, tread lightly, and one more time, tread lightly. Yeah, it doesn't really affect you know how we do business here today, but just thought we'd throw that out there for people. So moving on to uh, taking this 101 uh, episode to heart, uh, we're going to go over some educational topics, Matt, and just kind of talk through some of the basics that maybe novices or newbies to you know financial planning or investing might need to know. Um, so let's bring it back to the basics. Okay. Um, so we'll start out with the first question for you, Matt. How do you calculate one's net worth? Yeah. So a lot of listeners might see this term net worth. What you're going to do is you're going to add up all of your assets and then you next you're going to subtract any of your liabilities and that bottom line number will come up in essence with your liquid net worth right at that point so with that being said um, that's the easy way to do it assets minus liabilities means what you're in essence worth at the end of the day on paper right so anything as- you want to add to that yeah, no, just giving some some examples of what those could be. So assets um, like your home, if you don't have a mortgage on it or at least the equity in your home, um, that's considered an asset. Cars that don't have any loans against it, um, you know, retirement accounts and other taxable investment accounts, that type of thing. Then obviously liabilities or, you know, any student loans that you might have, car loans, mortgages, that type of stuff. So exactly. Um, pretty basic calculation. And there's a lot of templates out there that have like personal financial statements and, you know, net worth statements that you can just plug numbers into and it'll automatically spit it out for you. So if people want to do that, you can just do a quick Google search. and, and Or within able- Excel itself, Microsoft Excel, you can do the search for net worth or personal financial statement. I know templates will come up for that too. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty easy um number two what does the term risk tolerance mean all right so i want to kind of go over the formal kind of definition and then i'm going to add my kind of editorial opinion slant to it if 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 i'm if i may so you know the formal definition mark is going to be a person's capacity for how much risk they're willing or able to withstand for a possibly larger reward okay the timeline and amount of money a person has to invest often has an impact on their risk tolerance. That being said, risk tolerance varies from person to person and depends upon an individual's feelings, attitude, and circumstances. So that's going to be kind of what I would call the formal definition of a risk tolerance. I think um, what it means to me is it has to do with the ability to temporarily over a time period lose capital and what is your ability to withstand that that's my interpretation of it what would Mm -hmm. you yeah i would say that's the same thing and i think you know like we've talked about before on here that typically people think you know they can handle a for example 100 percent stock portfolio until the market falls by 20 or 30 percent um but again we know from you know history over the long run you know 
higher risk means higher reward. So, but the thing that I think people have to understand is that, yeah, if I'm in a hundred percent stock portfolio, that's going to benefit me over the long run. But when I'm 75 and need to take income from my portfolio, can I afford to take a 20 or 30% drop? If you can, then great, but not all people can. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's a huge misconception that everyone's risk tolerance is the same, right? Um, So for example, someone who makes, let's say $500,000 per year has investable assets of $15 million. I don't think they necessarily, depending on their lifestyle, I don't think that person necessarily needs to take as much risk from a investment standpoint as someone who makes $75,000 per year and hasn't really saved that much for retirement, right? Because if you need to build up your assets to be able to draw income off of that, then yeah, you're going to need to take a little more risk in your accounts to grow it over the next several years. Whereas someone who already has 15 million of investable assets, you know, they don't need to really take as much market risk because they have a good nest egg already saved up. So it really depends on what your personal situation is. And you can't let outside influences make decisions for you, like a friend or a neighbor or a family member that's telling you to do X, Y, and Z. They don't know what your personal financial situation is. And they also don't have to deal with the ramifications of the decision. Right, exactly. So I think it's something that you need to figure out on your own, and it's better to figure it out when you're younger, obviously. But if you are you know, 10, 15, even five years away from retirement, then I think it's something you need to look at even more closely and say, hey, you know, am I in a good spot right now with what I have to be able to, you know, spend down these assets in retirement or do I not have enough? And if that's the case, you need to work longer or you need to be more aggressive to grow those assets to get to that point. Well put. Well put. How about I ask you the next question? Sure. So let's explain to listeners what is a stock and what is a bond? Yeah. So a stock, you know, have, owning one share of stock of XYZ company represents, you know, a small, small sliver. sliver of ownership in that company, right? So that entitles you typically, and again, we can go really into the weeds on that, on this, but typically one share of stock gives you one vote for, for companies. So you can vote on board of directors and you can vote on different company initiatives. So this is when you see, you know, large investors take like a 10 or 15% position in a company. They have a lot of votes to, to, dictate to influence what they what want to happens, happen. Right. So, you know, in, investing in a stock is, you know, pretty much betting on a company being successful down the road, right? Because let's bring it back. Why do we invest in the first place? It's to protect our purchasing power. So if we invest in XYZ company, we're expecting that company's stock to rise over the long term, and we're going to benefit from owning that company's stock, right? Um, a bond, on the other hand, is loaning money to a company or a government, for example, and in return for loaning that money to that company or the government, you're going to receive an interest payment, right? So, you know, think of it like a mortgage. You know, if you go and get a mortgage, you know, you're taking money from the bank to be able to live in that house, right? And in turn, for the bank giving you that money up front, you're going to pay the bank an interest payment. 
It works the same way for a corporate bond, for example. So let's say you know, you buy an Apple bond that's due in five years. You're going to loan that money to Apple, and in return, they're going to pay you a stated interest rate every year for you loaning that money to them. Um, the other big difference is in the event in a, a bankruptcy of a publicly traded company, bondholders are paid out first before, before equity holders. Okay, So if a company goes up, bondholders are paid whatever residual value is left. And then if there's anything left after that, then common stockholders get paid out. And there's preferred in there as well, but we won't get into that. Um, so I think that's you know, pretty basic definition of that. If you want to add anything to it. Yeah. One thing I'll do is I'll take it one step further and just kind of give the summary of where you get return from. So way somebody gets a return by owning a stock two ways, price appreciation. Example, you buy ABC stock at $10, it appreciates to 12. You made 20% over whatever time period. The other way you can make a return is when that company um, shares part of its profits via a dividend. And that could also be something that obviously could be included in that return calculation. Obviously, going back to your example about the bond, where you make your money is mainly through the interest rate. Now, there are some co complex examples where you can buy a bond at a discount, and I won't get into that for this example, but the main thing is the interest rate for yeah. a bond. Right. Number four, what does the term diversification mean? And I think, you know, this is a pretty basic one, Matt, that we're all taught not to put our eggs in one basket. Um, so we kind of spread out our risk into different assets um, to lower our risk, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't want to just own one stock with all of our liquid net worth, right? Because then our liquid net worth is tied to that one stock. Feast and, or famine. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, when we talk about diversification, if we have a portfolio of, let's say, 20 stocks, then our risk is more spread out and we don't have bankruptcy risk in just that one name, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, I don't think any investment advisor or any person would tell you to put all of your liquid net worth into one stock or to one investment. So we just want to diversify that risk so that, you know, if one stock is performing poorly or does have an increased risk of bankruptcy, then you have 19 other ones to pick up the, the slack, so to speak. Yeah, let's give a real life example uh, for listeners. And what comes to mind are individuals that have worked for a publicly traded company for some time and have accrued one way or another company stock. And then as time goes on, that becomes if they don't you know, sell any, it can become a large part of their net worth. And my word of caution for listeners is, you know, no single company is bulletproof. And we've given examples, the podcast in the past, but I'm going to pick on a local uh, company, I'm going to pick on General Electric, they had a, a they still have a pretty big presence in the Cincinnati area, uh, with their aircraft uh, engine division. And you know, you take GE 2025 years ago, they were a behemoth and no one thought that they were going to get knocked out of the top 10 holdings of the s p 500 and what happened mark they did they did <laughs> and so i like using that as an example another good example is ibm 20 25 years ago they were the top dog in tech right couldn't be touched and um they're not in the top 10 anymore of size of companies within tech so I just like to throw that out there that, you know, if you have a large concentration in one specific security, that's something that needs to be reviewed. 
Right. Okay. Yep. Good example. Um, so kind of piggybacking off of diversification, can you talk about asset allocation and you know how is that different from or similar to diversification? So you're looking at categories at this point, right? What investment category a specific investment would fall into, right? So there's three major asset classes generally that people will look at. Stocks, bonds, cash or cash equivalents, right? Those are going to be the main categories. And, you know, each of those react differently to conditions in the market and the economy. So you got to be sure to choose, you know, a lineup that best fits your personal goals, risk tolerance, time horizon. So, for example, Mark, investing in stocks could give you strong growth over time. But as you were insinuating earlier, they could also be quite volatile in short spats or short time periods. Thus, one of the most common pieces of investment advice out there is to diversify your portfolio or, in essence, put money in several different buckets to make sure you're risking as little as possible while trying to achieve your goals over the long term. So the, the reason people tend to allocate to bonds is to try to dampen volatility, right. right? And so what you see a lot of times is you'll see people say, well, I'm in a balanced portfolio, right? That really generally means in our industry, somewhere about 60% stock and 40% bonds in cash. That's a kind of a loose definition. And so that would, when someone says, what's your asset allocation? It's generally how much stock do you have and what's the remaining in bonds or cash? And you can equivalent that to a risk level. Right. Anything you want to add. Yeah. And then for more sophisticated investors, you know, you can throw real estate in there. You can throw alternative assets in there. You can throw commodities in there. And now in today's world, you can throw cryptocurrencies in there. You can. So it's not just limited to, you know, stocks, bonds and cash. But if you are just getting started, that's a good place to start. Well put. Um, Dollar cost averaging. Do you want to touch on this a little bit? Absolutely. So it's the practice of buying a certain number of shares with the same amount of money in a given investment on a periodic basis, Mark, where regardless of the price per share, so you're consistently doing it. Investors do this because allegedly it helps reduce their risk of investing a large amount of money in a single investment at the wrong time. So for example, you buy $100 worth of shares in a business every year, no matter what the price is. So when the price is down, you buy more shares with your allotted money, price goes up, you end up buying fewer shares. The idea is, is that you're averaging the cost per share over time, minimizing your price risk. Right, exactly. And a good example of this, you know, people just doing it automatically without even thinking that it's dollar cost averaging is contributing to your 401k plan every two weeks. Through your payroll deductions. Right. So your dollar cost averaging into these different funds that are available to you. So if you're a young investor in a 401k plan, you know, down markets really aren't a bad thing for you. You should actually be wishing for that because you're buying in at lower prices. And if you have a a time horizon that's 20, 30, even 40 years, you know, you're going to be in a pretty good spot. Now, I do think that there have been there has been research done on what's better dollar cat cost averaging or just putting all your money in at the same time and i think don't quote me on this because i gotta i have to dig up the research report on this but if you have a longer time horizon it generally makes sense just to invest your money all at once but again it's a psychological thing that 
you're going to see a lot more ups and downs and volatility in the count if you do it that way rather than dollar cost averaging over a certain time horizon. You said it perfectly. I mean, because ultimately it tends to be more psychological and the aspect of us with thinking, oh, I should have done this playing Monday morning quarterback Um, because everything's clear in hindsight. Mm-hmm. That's why if you do have a longer term time horizon, I'm not as concerned about the price risk that we just discussed. But if it is a situation where, say, money's been sitting on the sidelines for an extended period of time, that tends to be more of an emotional decision as to invest that. Hence, dollar cost averaging tends to provide relief to that anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're someone that has had, you know, 50 percent of your liquid net worth in cash, you know, to help them move out of that, they're definitely not going to want to put that to work all at one time. Exactly. Right. So it's just a way to take baby steps to get there. Exactly, sir. Um, The difference between a bull market and a bear market. So and I really this is in the news a lot. still. Yeah, it is. And I don't really like these terms, but, you know, typical financial media defines a bear market of, you know, falling prices, generally 20 percent or more from a a peak in price. Um, is is you know defined as a bear market, and that's when investors start to lose confidence, sell their stocks, et cetera, et cetera. Bull market, the opposite of a bear market, is when a stock uh, stock market is trending up over an extended period of time, and it's twenty percent uh, higher than the lowest low that the market Correct. hit. Right. Correct. And again, I don't really like like who who put that definition on there. Twenty percent. I, I don't know. It's always it's just the way it's always been. It's the way it's always been. So, you know, I just think it's important for people to know that we are in bull markets a lot more than we're in bear markets. That's a very accurate. Right. So if you take the S&P 500 from, you know, on a chart and plot it from 1950 to today, you'll see that that price is moving from the lower left hand corner of the chart to the upper right hand corner of the chart. And obviously, it's not a straight linear line. There's some bumps in the road along the way, but it's pretty clear to see that we are in uh, money making times, i.e. a bull market more than we are a bear market. So again, if you're a long term investor, you know, I I really wouldn't even pay attention to the the bull bear conversation because over the long run, I think people are going to be just fine. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to kind of bring this topic up is just they still use it in the news a lot. Right. They do. One other um, um, term that I think should be explained is the term market correction. And the loose definition in our industry listeners is from the high water mark, a down movement of 10%. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's just to give you an idea. If someone were to properly use the term, this stock, the market, the S&P is in a correction. It means from the high water mark, it has sold off in excess of 10%. 10%. Yeah. Okay. Um, next up is the difference between active and passive investing. Ooh. So, um, I'm going to provide 100% editorial slant on this. Um, (laughs) you ready for me to do this? (laughs) I can know what you're going to say, but go ahead. Are you concerned? No, not at all. Okay. (laughs) Mark knows me very well, listeners. So again, I'm going to explain the difference between active and passive investing. So here's, I'm going to start with passive. Passive is where somebody invests in a blanket index that is static. The popular ones that are quoted a lot in the industry listeners, first is the S&P 500 index. That is something called a market cap weighted index. 
loosely, very loosely said, it's about 500 of the largest size companies that trade in America, very mm -hmm. loosely. And that's you take the, the shares outstanding times the price, price of per the share. share, and that's how you get the market, market cap. And the higher, higher the market cap, the higher weight they have. It has in the index. Exactly. So another popular passive index, the NASDAQ 100, which is uh, similar. The 100 largest companies that's a, a trade on the NASDAQ exchange, mm -hmm. okay? So passive investing means that no one is actively selecting one stock over another. When you are passively investing, whatever that index has in it at those weights is what you're gonna invest in. So what people tend to do, listeners, is they will look at these passive indexes to judge or relate their performance, okay? It's very popular. So before I go to active, anything else you want to add to passive? All right, let me ask you this question. What if someone's like, I'm going to buy these 10 stocks and hold them for 40 years? Okay. Is that, is that, can that be considered passive? So I would say no, in my opinion, and I'll explain why. So um, this is where it starts to get more controversial in, in, in my mind when we talk about passive investing, because you have an arbitrary group at S&P that is picking who comes in and who comes out of these indexes. And though they don't make changes very often, they definitely do. And let's go back to my comment a couple of minutes ago in regards to um, single stock risk. You know, people thought 20, 25 years ago, GE and IBM were the cat's meow, and they were definitely in the top 10 of the S&P 500 index. And guess what? They're not there anymore. So if you want to be a passive investor and not have to put a lot of homework or thought into it, and you want broad exposure to the market, that's the easiest way to do it. Okay. And over time, they're going to make those changes to the index based upon the bigger companies. Mm -hmm. Good way of saying it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So now let's relate passive investing to active. Active investing is where somebody objectively is picking investments and overweighting the ones they like. Okay. That is, in a very quick nutshell, that's active investing. What we do here as a practice, we are active investors. Mm -hmm. We just don't settle for whatever the index are invested in, mm -hmm. okay? Um, we don't passively invest. We go out there and we are objectively picking investments, monitoring them and deciding over time whether to stick with those or to sell and do something different. Yeah, and I think it's important to note too that if someone's an active investor, that doesn't mean that they're day trading or they're jumping in and out of stocks, yep. you know, every yep. couple of weeks. Being an active investor, you can still have a really long time horizon, right? Yeah. Warren Buffett's an active investor. Right. He didn't trade a lot, but he's still an active investor. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Good way to put it. Yep. Um, we kind of touched on the difference or, or, or you know, how the S&P 500 index is made up, Matt. So it's a, a market cap weighted index. So the larger the market cap, the larger the weight that they have in that index. Same as the NASDAQ 100. Same as the NASDAQ 100. The Dow's a little different and it's price weighted. This is very unique. Right. So 30 stocks in the Dow, 
Uh, I believe the largest holding in the Dow is United Healthcare right because now. Because of the price per share. Because of the price per share. And it used to be Apple until Apple split its shares not too long ago. And so what is what that means, in my own words for listeners, Mark, is that it takes a lot less for United Healthcare to move a dollar than it does a holding in the Dow that's $30 a share for it to move a dollar. Mm-hmm. That's why the Dow is more manipulative because it's only 30 names that, it, in essence, the biasy is to the higher price stocks. Right. So I'll throw it out there. That's why I put less weight into the Dow. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I agree. And, I, and it's evolved over time because back in the, you know, 50 years ago, the Dow was the index, right? It was. Because it really, it, 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 I think back in the day, it represented the U.S. economy a lot more than it does now. Correct. Because a lot of stocks were very disciplined. Companies were disciplined in splitting their shares. They didn't let their shares get three, four, five hundred dollars $500 a share. It's different now. Yeah. And so because of that, um, I think it's, um, let's just say it's relevance in my world. It, it, it's less and less. Yeah. But the reason I think it's quoted in the media so much is now the headline figures on the Dow are so big that it's more sensational to say the Dow moved 500 points right. than saying the Dow moved X percentage. Yeah, agreed. Um, target date funds. So these listeners are uh, are funds that are available they're available if you're not in a 401k, but typically in your in your 401k or your employer sponsored retirement plan, you'll have something called a target date fund or it's called like a lifestyle index fund, something like that. And what this does is the target date funds are named by year. So they have target date funds for someone's year they're planning on retiring, right? So if there's a 2040 target date fund, that means you're going to retire in 2040. And what does that mean? The closer and closer you get to year 2040, the more and more conservative that fund is automatically going to get. So if you want to put something on autopilot and you don't want to have to touch anything with investments in your 401k, it's not a bad idea. The only cautionary thing I'll throw out there for people is that you have to realize the closer and closer you get to 2040, for example, the more and more conservative you're going to get. And you need to take a look at your own financial situation and say, is that the right move for me? Or can I not afford to get more conservative by the time I'm 2040? So you have to take into consideration how much you currently have in your 401k along with your other investable assets. You need to take into account other pension income you're going to have in retirement, social security income, and say, hey, you know, is 5% of whatever my 401k is going to be worth in 2040, is that enough for me to live the way I want to live in retirement? So if you're pretty confident that that's the case and you want to go to a more income-oriented or more conservative-based portfolio when you retire, then I think you know uh, target date funds are great. But I think people just have to be aware of what they are. Very well put, Mark. Um, I'll add a couple of tidbits for listeners. The rule of thumb that I tell clients is that when that target date fund reaches that year, it has stock exposure somewhere between 20 to 30% of the fund. 
That's a general rule of thumb. And for a lot of people who have a higher portfolio withdrawal rate in retirement to help supplement their living expenses, 30% stock might not keep up with that and or inflation. And I think that's the cautionary point. I don't want to disagree with you at all. I think they're a great vehicle for a one-stop shop for someone that doesn't want to put a lot of thought or work into it. My only cautionary tale, closer you get to that age, definitely something you want to review. Yeah, exactly. It's like anything else. You just have to understand how, how it works. Yes. Right? So um, why don't we go to the next one? And why don't you discuss the difference between a mutual fund mark and an exchange traded fund? Yeah. So a, a mutual fund is a fund that trades, trades once per day right so you can't actively go trade it like a stock during the day during the day so once per day happens at the end of the day is when you can buy it right or sell it or sell it and an exchange traded fund is you can trade it like a stock and you can buy or sell it anytime between the hours of 9 30 a.m and 4 p.m when the market's open right yep um you know back 20 or 30 years ago mutual funds were more popular um, and then exchange traded funds came onto the market to number one, lower costs, and number two, give people access to buy and sell those exchange traded funds during the day. Um, you know, so I think from a tax perspective, um, ETFs, exchange traded funds, are more tax efficient um, and they're lower costs. So I think they're more. Um, they're you know, gaining in popularity. They are gaining in popularity, and I don't think that that trend is going away. So those are the two main differences between you know the mutual funds and, and the ETFs. Um, but you know you have mutual funds and ETFs that manage money the same way, but generally ETFs are going to be cheaper. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think it's a good way to explain that to listeners. Um, expense ratios. You see this a lot, don't you? Yeah. And where listeners might see this term expense ratio is if they're um, um, contributing or active in a 401k or a 403b uh, retirement plan through their employer, or they have um, an investment uh, vehicle through like a personal brokerage account or an IRA, like a mutual fund or like an exchange traded fund, that's not managed for free, right? So the term expense ratio is from the management and research fees to administer the fund. It has that cost. The expense ratio is calculated by dividing the fund's expenses by the average value of the fund's assets. So for example, Mark, if a fund has an expense ratio of 1%, that means it costs 1% of the value of the fund just to keep it running every year. It's break even. Mm -hmm. So in very plain English, if that fund did not return any uh, anything that year, they were break even, the actual investor would represent a 1% loss because of the fund cost. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just important to point out that it it's kind of hidden sometimes behind the scenes, but there there is a cost to that. And I know that there, I think i there are some ETFs out there now that are that have zero expense ratios. I think Vanguard has a couple and a couple other custodians have yep. some some uh, zero expense ratio funds. But the majority of them, there is a cost to it, especially in the 401ks. There is. And the other thing I'll throw out there, not to get too deep in the weeds, but um, I think a big mis misconception is that the expense ratio is completely inclusive of all cost. And it is not. Mm -hmm. There's things outside of it, um, things such as trading cost, 
Um, you know, there's other things in addition to that, but the expense ratio is the one that's talked about the most. Hence why I wanted to make sure we covered that from a definition standpoint. The term fiduciary. So I know this term is kind of thrown out a lot, but in plain English, what fiduciary means is if you're working with an advisor um, and they are a fiduciary advisor, they are legally obligated to do what is in the best interest of their clients. And I think this came to flourish and Matt is because, again, back in the day, a lot of advisors were paid on a commission basis. So they would sell different mutual funds, for example, or annuities, for example, and they would get an upfront commission for that. And, you know, that brought into play conflicts of interest because mm -hmm. if the advisor is just selling a product because it's going to pay them the most, is that necessarily in the client's best interest? Yeah, because the rule back then was uh, the standard you were held to was just a suitability standard. Right. Was the investment suitable? Where, you know, one, you know, what was very popular in the 80s and 90s were what I call proprietary mutual funds. So if someone had XYZ brokerage house, they would have their own proprietary XYZ growth fund. And in that time, those proprietary funds paid more in a commission than maybe an independent fund. But as long as the growth fund was suitable for that client, they were completely within their ability to do that. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're an advisor and you're selling a client a certain investment, but there's a very, very similar uh, product that is cheaper, you know, you got to make that determination if the clients or the advisor is doing in whatever's in your best interest. Essentially. Yeah. And in, 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 for example, in our practice, we are fiduciaries for our clients. And it seems to be more and more of the hot button word that's being used in advertising and in commercials. Um, and so I think you defining that, I think will help clear up, you know, what that is and how it's different. Mm -hmm. Another hot button item that just came into, uh, you know, popularity again, just within the past year is short selling. Yeah. So uh, before I kind of give the definition on this, um, this is not something that I think uh, most investors should be utilizing. Mm -hmm. I want to throw that out there. But just so we can define it. Um, what does short selling mean? In the cases of short selling, an investor or speculator borrows shares of a stock or another asset that they do not own, sells and pockets the money with the promise to replace the property in the future in the hopes that the asset declines in price so it could be repurchased at a lower cost and the deferential becoming the profit. If done incorrectly, the investor could become bankrupt because the losses are unlimited. Yeah. So if you're selling something short, it's just the opposite of when you go to buy something, right? If you buy, want to go to buy something, you want the price to go up, right? When you sell short, you want the price to go down, hoping that you can buy it back at a cheaper price that you sold it for. And then you net, you net the profits, right? Yeah. Um, and then you return those shares of stock to whoever you borrowed it from. So there's a cost to that too, to borrowing that stock to sell it because you're going to have to replace that eventually. That's right. And so let's give an example. Um, $10 ABC stock. If you sell it short, your goal is to buy back that stock at less than $10 a share. But what could happen to the upside? That stock could go from 10 to 50. And you not only lost $10 a share, 
you lost another $40 a share. You could lose more than 100%. The losses are unlimited. A stock could go from 10 to infinity. That is why this is not something an average investor should even be thinking about, in my opinion. Right, because if you're buying something, your loss is limited to whatever you bought it for, right? So if you put you know, $1,000 into company ABC and you bought it at $10 a share and it goes to zero, you, you only lost $1,000. You your, your initial investment. You can't lose more than that. But yes. when you're selling short, you can theoretically lose, lose more than a limited amount of money. Yeah, that's that. That's why it's not advisable life deal. Yeah, okay. agreed. Um, so kind of even going a little further with that, Matt, what's margin? Okay. More and more um, brokers or custodians are putting margin on after-tax accounts automatically, okay? So brokers will often lend customers money against the value of their investments, whether it's stocks, bonds, or other securities that they custodian, and the client is agreeing to pledge that entire account balance as collateral, as well as provide a personal guarantee. So a good way of thinking of margin is let's think about a home equity line of credit. You have a house, you have equity in your home, and you know what, you wanna do some upgrades, maybe do some renovations to the house, Mark. You can go to a bank, get a home equity line of credit, they're gonna hold the value of your house as collateral, and they'll let you borrow against it. It's no different from the custodians. Let's say you have 10 different investments, they'll let you borrow against those investments, but if your investment decisions go against you, they'll either force you to put money in. If you don't have it, they could force liquidation on the account. So margin equals leverage. And this falls under the category of most investors don't even want to think about it. Right. And it's just a way to magnify you know, gains or losses in an account, depending on the investment decision. Yes. But it's no different that, you know, you have a home equity line of credit and you know, housing market, you know, takes a little bit of a drop. <clears throat> you don't pay your, your HELOC back, then you get your house taken, Take it right? away. And it's the same thing with, you know, margin on investment accounts. You know, if, if you don't have enough money in that account, if you're losing money hand over fist, they can force you to sell your investments in that account and take that, and they can take that money from you, essentially. That's right. That's so right. it's just something that, again, if you're just getting started, I would advise to stay away from it um, until you can educate yourself a little bit more and come up with a game plan to how you would use it. Um, but, you know, me and you have just seen a lot of people blow up their accounts from using margin. Very well put. The difference between interest income, dividend income, and capital gains. So, oh, this is a good one. Yeah. So, interest income, Matt, is what you receive when you lend someone or you lend a company money and they're paying you that interest rate, right? Mm -hmm. So that's taxable income. You have to pay tax on that. That's just not In the tax year free. you receive it. Right. And there's differences with municipal bonds and that type of thing, but I won't get into that for today. Um, dividend income, like we talked about, a company is sharing their profits with shareholders. Yep. Um, generally, dividends in the U.S. are taxed at um, their they're considered qualified dividends and taxed at the capital gains rate, which could be anywhere between zero and 20%. Mm -hmm. um, for it to qualify as a qualified dividend and get taxed at the preferential capital gains tax rate, it needs to come from a U.S. company or a qualifying foreign company. 
and you need to hold that stock for 60 days within the 121 day period of the X dividend date. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the X dividend date is when the company you know, pays the dividend and it trades the, the shares trade X dividend, right? Yep. Um, so there's a 121 day window before or after. Um, you need to hold it for at least 60 days. And I know that's kind of into the weeds for people, but that's the holding period that the IRS defines, yep. right? Um, if you hold it for less than that, then dividends are taxed at your ordinary income tax bracket, essentially. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, and then capital gains, obviously, is just, you know, you buy a stock for $10, you sell it for $15, you pay tax on that five dollar per gain, share gain unless it's in a retirement account. Correct. Right. So you pay tax unless it's in a retirement account. You pay tax when you realize the gain, and that's as of right now. There's talk about taxing unrealized gains, but that hasn't happened yet, so we won't go into it. But you know, essentially, when you realize a gain and you click that sell button to lock in the gain. You have to pay tax on it in that year. Yes. And the reason I think we should highlight this a little bit further, I feel there's some misperceptions from certain investors who think, well, if I don't personally take the money out of the investment account, I'm not going to get taxed. The government views it as you realize that gain. You then have a choice what you end up doing with that money. And if you choose to roll it to another investment, so be it. But guess what? They're still going to tax it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Um, rebalancing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Rebalancing is very popular. Um, it's a term that gets used a lot. And it is a way to keep portfolio allocations and risk in line. What tends to happen, Mark, over time, and you highlighted equity returns relative to bonds in history, meaning stocks over a longer period of time tend to perform better than bonds. If somebody starts off, and I'm just going to use an example of 60% stock and 40% bonds, 20 years later, if you don't adjust anything, you're probably going to be closer to 90% stock and 10% bonds. Right. So what a lot of people will do, Mark, is once a year, as an example, they'll look at it and they'll say, okay, my stock exposure went from 60 to 65. To keep my game plan in line, my portfolio risk and my asset allocation, I'm going to trim 5% from the stock and allocate it back to bond. So it is a way of maintaining the pie or the asset allocation and not letting that creep over time and getting too much stock exposure. Yeah, because going back to the risk tolerance conversation, if someone decides, hey, my risk tolerance on the high end is 65% stock, but if that gets to 75%, you want to bring that back down to get within your risk tolerance, right? It's correct. And in a lot of these custodians these days, and you can think of the big ones, Fidelity, Schwab, go down the list of large custodians that a lot of 401k and 403b plans they, you can set up automatic rebalancing to where you set it up once, it does it once a quarter, semi-annual once a year, and boom, it's done, takes care of itself. Yeah, or and, and the flip side of it is you can do it manually. So I know a lot of people back in March of 2020, you know, their stocks took a big hit, but they still had, a, you know, 20, 30, 40% of their money in bonds that they sold those bonds and in, bought stocks at lower levels, cheap. right? Yeah. 
So that's another way to do it too. Yep. You could override that, do it manual. Yep. yep. Um, difference between a defined benefit plan and a defined contribution plan. And in today's day and age, most people are going to be familiar with a defined contribution plan. Yes. So a defined contribution plan, an example of that is a 401k, an employer-sponsored retirement plan where there is a defined contribution rate that your company is going to give you like a match, right? So if your company says, we're going to match you you know, dollar for dollar up to 3% of your pay. That's a defined contribution, what the company is going to contribute to your retirement plan, right? Yep. So do you want to talk about uh, defined benefit plans and, you know, how that was used back in the day and we've moved away from that kind of now? Yeah. So in the past, defined benefit plan listeners is a fancy term for pension plans, okay? Pension plans in the past were primarily contributed to 100% by the employer. The goal was to replace a certain percentage of your salary, usually be your highest three years or your average or your highest five years, a percentage of that if you work X amount of years in retirement. The problem is 30, 40 years ago, the mortality tables or the life lifespan assumptions were nowhere near what people are living at today. So what's happened is companies were figuring out, oh my gosh, our retirees are living longer than we thought. Hence, we didn't put enough money into these plans and then became really expensive. And so what you're starting to see, especially over the last decade, Mark, companies are freezing, getting rid of the defined benefit plans and going to define contributions where the employee picks their own investment risk, they define that they're going to start putting in money of their own, and they're turning over the responsibility of providing their, their living expense money in retirement to the employee, and it's going away from the employer's responsibility. Yeah, so essentially it was, you know, it was outlined for employees that, hey, <clears throat> you make this amount of money and you're with us for X amount of years, this is what your benefit will be in retirement if you retire at 65 or 70 or whatever. Yeah, so a real life example I, I see a lot in the past is you work 30 years, you get 70% or 65% of your highest five-year average salary or income, and you get that every year in retirement, and it might have a little bit of inflation a bump every year, and companies are figuring out people are living longer than they thought, and then they're on the hook for the investment returns to make sure that they come through. And that's why you see companies getting away from it. Yeah. So you're essentially the companies are, you know, taking the risk off of themselves and putting it on the employee. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, the difference between a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. So simply put, um, traditional IRAs are um, created with pre-tax contributions. Um, so you get to deduct those contributions off of your income for the year when you do taxes, right? A Roth IRA, those are funded with after-tax contributions, okay? So with a traditional IRA, since that money has not been taxed yet, once you are older than 59 and a half and you're in retirement and need to take money out of it to help supplement living expenses, that money is taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, okay? That's for traditional IRAs. For a Roth IRA, since it was funded with after-tax dollars, 
that money cannot be taxed again. So if you're older than 59 and a half, you need to help supplement living expenses. You can take money out of your Roth IRA completely tax-free. Well put. And, and so the- listeners, if you contribute to a retirement plan, you need to look and see if it offers the ability for after-tax Roth contributions, because that could be a big benefit for you in retirement. Yeah. All right, we made it through our, our finance 101 map, but we do have some listener questions. We had a few that Dennis sent in, um, so we'll roll through these really quickly. Um, first, Dennis says, please discuss brick and mortar type retail market. What would be good equities? Costco, question mark, department type stores, Best Buy. What does the future of retail look like to you? Mm. Wow, that's a loaded question. That's a loaded question, Dennis. You want me to go first? I'll start. Okay. Um, I think that even pre-COVID, we were transitioning more and more towards online shopping and COVID just, you know, kind of exacerbated that and sped that up. I think that was going to happen regardless if COVID happened or not. Um, I think that it's the physical retail market is not going to die and go away, but certain areas of it will. Um, if you can order something on Amazon, for example, and have it shipped to your house the very next day, I think it's just human behavior that people are going to want to do that rather than going to you know Macy's or Old Navy that's 20 or 30 minutes away. Just my personal opinion, but you know, I still think that there is a place for retail, um, and specifically when you're buying like food and like that type of stuff. You know, I don't know. I just I think in in 15 years there'll be further decay, in my opinion. There's going to be further decay, and I think the last statistic that I read about this was back like a year or two ago, and it still said only 10% of all retail sales were done online. Mm -hmm. But I think that number is slowly creeping up and up and up, and eventually it will surpass, you know, in-store, physical, go, physically going to the store and buying goods in a store. Eventually, we're just not there yet, but we are going in that direction. Yeah, I could put some numbers behind it. I know that they had some, in the past 12 months, there were some um, sessions in Congress regarding antitrust, and they got uh, Amazon um, officials up there. I think it was Bezos who was doing the testimony. And the senator's like, you know, you're completely dominating the retail market. And, and Bezos was like, let's take a step back. Let's put some numbers behind this. That's the perception. The numbers were that at Amazon made up 4% of total retail sales in the U.S. And then he went out to point. And by the way, currently, Walmart has a higher aggregate total number of sales than we do. So the perception he was throwing out there to the antitrust session was, your perception is, is that we're completely dominating. And yes, they have a higher percentage of online sales. But when you look at total retail sales, they were 4%. So I just want to throw that out there that kind of proves your point. Yeah. And, you know, you take So you mentioned Costco, Dennis. You know, they, yeah, they have, you know, these box stores all across the country, but they also have an online presence too. They so do. if you want to, you can still buy the same goods and services from Costco online that you can in the store. Um, I got one more thing to throw out there for Dennis. Yeah. Think of this also in the realm of what works to get delivered to you. Heavy, bulky stuff tends to not be profitable for delivery. 
That's why, and I'm not advocating for or against Costco, but I'm giving you an example that they specialize in heavy, bulky stuff. That's not what makes the profit margins for Amazon. Mm-hmm. So I just want to kind of throw that out there as a, as a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Next question, he says, we hear about balanced portfolios, dividing assets between investments such as stocks, bonds, and cash. What is your approach for your clients? I'll go first. So, you know, most of our clients, Dennis, um, as Mark was insinuating in various points uh, in our 101 uh, podcast, most are not comfortable with the volatility of being 100% stock. As you can imagine, Dennis, clients would love those longer term rates of return of being in 100% equity, but most can't stomach that. So what we do as a practice is we identify what is the right risk tolerance for that client? What can they stand in volatility? What sort of return do they need to meet their financial goals? We overlay those things, and it helps us determine what their asset allocation should be. What would you like to add? Yeah, and I think I think balance can mean different things for different people. I think for some people, 60-40 stock to bond allocation is balanced and some people it's 50 50 and some people it's even 40 percent stock and 60 percent bonds um you know the other way to look at it is you know if it's balanced in terms of you know asset ratios what assets do we have do we have stocks bonds and cash do we have stocks bonds commodities real estate alternative investments so i think the term balanced means different things to to different people yep um but generally it's you know it's more than just one asset class i think is the best way to describe it so it's going back to the the diversification thing of just not having all your eggs in one basket well put um last but not least will the third stimulus check received in the spring of 2021 be included in a recovery rebate credit calculation for the 2021 tax forms filled out in 2022 And just the basic answer to this question, Dennis, is yes, the stimulus payments uh, is an advance on a tax credit. So, you know, a tax credit is money that you can subtract from the actual taxes that you owe to the government, which is different from a deduction, which you get to subtract off of your income. But a tax credit reduces the amount you actually are paying the government. So credits dollar for dollar. Exactly. So to answer your question, Dennis, um, yes, that is correct. It will be treated as a recovery rebate credit. Anything else before we leave off on 101? Nope. Um, Listeners, if there was another, let's just say, financial term that uh, Mark and I did not cover today, please send that request in. We are happy to acknowledge that in future podcasts and explain a term that maybe we didn't cover. And uh, before we sign off, Mark, you want to remind people how they can send those questions in? Yeah. So um, several different ways you can tag us on social media um, at Jessup Wealth on Twitter. Uh, We have a Facebook page, Jessup Wealth Management and LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management. Um, But we also have an email inquiries at JessupWealthManagement.com if people want to send in questions that way as well. Sounds great. Um, And the final thing I guess I'll say, Matt, is, you know, if you're not sure if you should invest in a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA or how much you should contribute to your 401k, 
just get started now and then figure it out later if you should be doing Roth or traditional or how much you can afford to contribute to your 401k. I think the thing for people is just getting started. They get hung up in the minutia. Paralysis of, by analysis. Yeah, exactly. So the, the biggest piece of advice that I could give to people is get started so you're doing something and then you have time to figure it out. Don't Something's better than nothing. Years trying to figure out what's the most optimal way to do things. Just get started, and then you can figure out what's most optimal for you down the road because it's going to change. <laughs> Nothing's going to stay stagnant. You're not always going to be in a position where you're like maxing out my traditional IRA every single year makes the most sense, regardless of what happens. That's just not going to be the case. Nope. You change, jobs change life happens and this is going to be evolving. And I think that's one of the misconceptions about financial plans, for example. People think it's going to turn out exactly how the, the plan lays it out, but you can't have software that accounts for what happens in human nature and what happens across someone's life over a 50-year time period, right? Yep. Um, so we like to say that we, we, we write financial plans in pencil, not pen, right? <laughs> that's right. So with that, we'll leave everyone there. And thanks for everyone tuning in to Finance 101 and the 100th and one episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful, safe weekend. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.